Khan at our new time and a better time to help you start your day with the latest news, interviews, and discussions about the issues that affect New York City. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and thank you for being with me this morning. My co-host, David Brand, is off today, and I'm sure he's tuning in because today's show has a distinct Queens focus. Yes, as you know, I live in Queens, but the issues I'll be talking about with my guests today are more universal than any one neighborhood. The pandemic has touched all parts of our lives, and as you get outside now in the warmer weather and you walk around, you probably have noticed a number of establishments and institutions that you'd normally visit that are still closed. We still don't have indoor dining. We don't have open museums or theaters. And also, many of the smaller businesses that we would routinely visit may still be shut or might be barely holding on. With significant job losses, a steeper unemployment rate, a looming eviction crisis, and a city budget that had to be trimmed by billions of dollars, the New York City that we live in is going to be significantly different than the one that was pre-pandemic. And many communities are being disproportionately impacted. Communities of color, for instance, have witnessed much higher rates of the virus, as has been widely reported. But the devastation is also that it's significantly deeper in communities of color when it comes to the economy. There was a report that was out just a few days ago on Friday by New York City Controller Scott Stringer that I found incredibly alarming, and I wanted to just bring this up with you first, and then I'll ask my first guest about this as well. This study revealed that minority and women-owned businesses across New York City are having the most difficult time weathering the economic storm that has been wrought by the COVID-19 pandemic. He did a survey of 500 what are called MWBEs across the five boroughs and concluded that 85% of owners indicated they would not be able to survive the next six months with their current resources. And 30% of respondents indicated they may not make it past the next 30 days given economic hardship. So with that, I'm going to go to my first guest, Hope Knight, President and CEO of the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation, which is located in downtown Jamaica in Queens. She took the helm of the nonprofit five years ago, and I'll briefly describe it, but let her elaborate more. It was founded in 1967. It is one of the nation's first community development corporations, and it encourages responsible private and public investment and enhances the quality of life for residents and workers of Jamaica. And this organization has become a model of economic transformation. Hope Knight, welcome to WBAI. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me this morning. So first, can you briefly describe a bit more about the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation? I gave kind of the the overview, but specifically, tell our listeners about what you do, your footprint, and who you serve. Yes. So, you know, as you mentioned, Greater Jamaica is one of the longest-standing local economic development organizations focused on expanding the economy of downtown Jamaica. You know, our our mission is that we plan, promote, coordinate, and advance responsible development to revitalize Jamaica and strengthen the region. And we do this working with the public, the private, the not-for-profit sectors um, by improving the quality of life for the ethnically diverse uh, residents of Jamaica and for the region at large. And um, we are focused on uh, driving economic investments into downtown. Uh, we do that by um, uh, uh, getting retail um, businesses, uh, large retailers to come to the region. We also are trying to attract commercial tenants, which really provide jobs that we want to be able to give local residents the opportunity to access. We also have a small business loan fund that we provide uh, capital to businesses that are unable to access capital from traditional financial institutions. We have a modest real estate portfolio. One of those um, properties is a food hall, which is really comprised of about 17 uh, small family businesses, mostly in the food sector. So we are trying to drive investment through a number of ways in creating job opportunities as well as access to capital to uh, underserved businesses in the Jamaica community. And I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that, that one of the key supports is job creation and preservation. Southeast Queens has had the second highest share of positive cases in the borough. How has your organization navigated the pandemic? 
So it, it has been very difficult, you know, uh, with the share of uh, positive uh, test rates, you know, comes, you know, high death rates. So, you know, this community has experienced a lot of loss. And, um, you know, sort of working in that context has been very difficult. What we did initially with our borrowers was we went out and uh, gave them a 60-day forbearance so that the payments would be put onto the back end of their loan terms. And, you know, that was a way of letting them know that we were thinking of them and knew that this was going to be very difficult. The other thing that we did was once the Paycheck Protection Program was announced and uh, activated, we worked with our businesses to help them access that funding. It wasn't really so straightforward for small businesses. And as you've probably heard during the first round of that program, many small businesses were not able to access. We helped them access it during the second round. And that, quite frankly, is helping many small businesses get through, um, you know, the last three months with being able to pay employees and some expenses related to their business. And and I'm glad you talked about that because that's where I was going to go next about the challenges that small businesses are facing in your district. What are some of the other challenges you're hearing? Because I know that even just, you know, determining how to reopen and, you know, what measures to implement in this new world could even be uh, daunting. Yes. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, it's this notion of trying to um, comply with regulations in this whole new world with social distancing and other um, and and, and making sure that you are able to serve your uh, clientele in a safe way. But there's also um, the issue of this change in consumer behavior. And, you know, we're talking through this with businesses and helping them think through this notion that, You know, consumers are not going to come back the way they necessarily had uh, been operating in the past in your specific businesses. And so having businesses think through how to pivot and respond to this new consumer behavior, because I think we're going to have this state of the world for some time to come. And when you consider your staff as well, how do you balance the needs of your clients with the level of risk to your employees? So, this, so that was tough because uh, when we realized that we're going to have to start working virtually, you know, my first concern was for making sure that my employees were going to be safe. And, you know, in general, we've been able to operate virtually. We had to figure out a lot of things. You know, we've been able to um, close some loans during this pandemic, and we had to figure out how to close a loan virtually, which was quite a task. And we were able to do that, and we're, we're going to move that forward. Um, one of the things that we were not able to do virtually, which we thought was very important, you know, we're partnering with the city's uh, small business services department to deliver PPE to uh, businesses in the district. And, you know, that that's, you know, kind of going out and um, doing that physically. And I've had staff members who've been able to do it, and I think do it in, in a socially distant way, but get this all-important PPE to businesses so that they can operate We've been doing that over the last three weeks. And uh, I mentioned just in introducing you, I was talking about Scott Stringer's alarming report that had just come out about the impact on MWBEs during the pandemic with such a steep percentage, 85% reporting, they may not survive the next six months. What do you hear from a number of the MWBEs in your district, and are there solutions? Are there things that maybe more widely are not being discussed that should be discussed as opportunities for them to be able to survive? I I think a couple of things. You know, just to speak to um, MWBEs, you know, the average business has about, uh, kind of retail business, has about 30 days of uh, working capital. In underserved communities, it's, half of that or less. That's sort of, you know, kind of 10 to 14 days of working capital. So they're already operating at a disadvantage and, 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 and you know, sort of in a difficult situation. And so uh, when you lay, layer on the fact that um, they've been closed for so long and, um, you know, we have opened, you know, in, in, in phase three, but there still are not the office workers um, in the district. And so, you know, in, for a lot of small businesses, those are, you know, the core clients. Um, 
I think that in this case, and because we don't know how long this is going to go on, um, these businesses need um, patient capital. You know, in some cases, they need grants. They just need a grant to keep them going so that when a business comes back, they can operate in the way that they had before. In other cases, it's patient capital. So it's long-term loans that um, don't have to be paid in a major way, you know, service fully until a business comes back because um, until business comes back, it's going to be very difficult for these businesses to operate. And we've all had to shift priorities as a result of the pandemic. If you think back to what you were working on in January and February of this year and now what you must prioritize, what are some of the priorities of the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation that you've had to put on the back burner or or slow down on now because we have more immediate needs? Yeah, so so there are these projects that we had related to development. You know, we thinking about uh, development of some small spaces for industrial businesses to operate out of. Uh, we were getting ready to uh, go into construction to build out a co-working space. We believe many of those projects will go forward. It's just going to take a longer timeline. I'll talk about some civic-related things that we were really focused on. You know, um, we are um, still in um, census season, and Greater Jamaica has been very involved in promoting the completion of the census, and we were going to get uh, be involved in a, a consortium of organizations who are going to focus on driving the completion of the census. And we, you know, still do that, but it's very difficult not being able to be on the ground and reaching out to individuals one-on-one. I'm so happy you mentioned the census. If you've listened to the show before, you know I bring up the census constantly because I want people to know, particularly as they're in their homes, go online. You could do it online. So thank you for bringing up the census. I ask most of my guests this, and I'm very curious how you personally have been impacted by the pandemic, because we all have friends, relatives, people in our lives who've been impacted. How have you personally been impacted? So, you know, in one regard, I've been very lucky. You know, my family and close friends were not necessarily impacted in a major way, but there has been tremendous loss. You know, I've lost friends. Um, We've lost, you know, community stalwarts. And so, as I, you know, continue to say, there has been tremendous loss in trying to come back with this overlay of tremendous loss is, is, is very difficult. It's, it's, it's um, quite draining. And when we look to the future, you know, we're in the process of, you know, phasing in the reopening. Uh, first, do you think it's, we're doing uh, that this process has been fluid Uh, Have we reopened too soon? Do you think, consider what's going on across the country in some regions where the virus is surging now. Did we reopen too soon? Did we not reopen soon enough? What's your vision, version of that? So, you know, I think that um, back in June, uh, like late May, early June, I thought we weren't opening up fast enough. But looking at what's happening around the country, um, it's probably just right. Um, I think that... um, You know, in general, New Yorkers are doing a good job. Um, There's a fairly high compliance of mask wearing. Um, But, you know, that has to continue. We we have to be vigilant. And um, it is my hope that we don't, you know, start receiving visitors from around the country that bring the virus back here. And we've got just about a minute left. What do you think the future holds for your sector, and in particular, small business, as a result of the pandemic? So, so I think a couple of things. I think that um, community economic development organizations, CDFIs, have never been more important. I think we're going to play a major role in supporting small businesses going forward. You know, we are on the ground. We know what small businesses need. And I think that... um, Government and other financial institutions have really come to terms with this over the last uh, three months. And so I think uh, we're looking to uh, be funded 
in a more significant way. And I think that that funding will create, you know, greater opportunity for smaller businesses to be successful. And how can people learn more about the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation? I think you should visit our website, www.gjdc.org, and you can follow us on social media. Hope Knight, President and CEO of the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation, thank you so much for joining me here today on WBAI. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I'm Jess Simmons, your host of uh, City Watch here on WBAI. We'll be back in just a moment. WBAI City Watch, also streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get to my next guest, I do want to remind our listeners that in this pandemic, we're all working remotely, so I apologize whenever there's little tech issues. This is a new world for me. Uh, But we've been staying on the air. We've been on air for 60 years. We want to be on air for another 60, and it is our extended spring into summer uh, fun drive. Uh, and if you are a longtime or a new listener, I just encourage you to just take a few moments and show your support, so show your love for WBAI uh, by giving a sustaining contribution and becoming a WBAI buddy. And what that really means is uh, you just give $10, $20, $15 uh, a month, put it on your credit card, and it, and it helps to keep us on the air, which is incredibly important. And, by the way, something I did – you, we also have WBAI face masks, $35. So if you do donate and you want one of the masks, give a $35 donation. Mine are hopefully in the mail right now. Uh, I can't wait to be able to show off my WBAI pride when I walk on one of our open streets here in Jackson Heights. Uh, let me tell you how you can do this, how you can donate. You can call 516-620-3602 or you can text. WBAI to 41444. And if you're at home and you're on your computer, you're listening to us streaming right now, go on the, go online. And that uh, web address is give to WBAI.org. Once again, give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. Thank you so much for anyone who donates. It's incredibly important because we can keep up this non-corporate, non-commercial, community progressive radio Hopefully for another 60 years. 
Thanks again. Let me get to my next guest, Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, someone who I am certain we're going to hear great things about in the coming years. She's a lifelong activist, nationally recognized expert on health care reform, gender and racial justice, and former executive director at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health. She's been a leader in the progressive movement for more than two decades, and this year, she saw an elective office to represent the 34th District in Queens, and in the June 23rd primaries, initial results received 40% of the vote, defeating incumbent Michael Dendecker, who garnered 23%. Thousands of absentee ballots still have yet to be counted, and she'll update me on that uh, if there's any developments. But she is expected to be the victor in this race to then become the Democratic candidate on the ballot in the November general election. So I invited her on to talk about the race also the issue she cares about, and that she's going to champion if she is eventually elected into the state assembly. Welcome to WBAI. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. So I want to start off by giving you a moment to introduce yourself to listeners. I gave a little of your bio, but talk a little about your introduction into public service and what, you know, what led you to want to pursue elective office. Yeah, I, um, I'm born in Queens. I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Um, and I'm someone, I'm a daughter of an immigrant father and a Puerto Rican mom. And, you know, I believe the personal is political. So the things I've seen my own family go through um, around immigration, around workers' rights, around the ability to secure stable housing, these are all things that shape my life. And I've done advocacy in multiple social justice fields. I've worked with uh, disabled vets. I've worked in higher ed, uh, early childhood ed. Um, and most recently, I've been working with the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health, where we look at intersectional issues that impact a Latina's ability to determine if, when, and how to create a family. So looking at gender justice, access to health care, you know, women's rights, LGBTQ liberation. So that is a place where I really found um, sort of my political home. Um, but it impacts the issues that we face in the communities every day. I'm excited to hopefully, <laughs> represent a community that is uh, 60% Latino and 62% immigrant. Um, so, you know, the struggles that I worked in at the National Latina Institute, specifically around healthcare and healthcare access, are the struggles and the uh, fight I will bring to Albany. And uh, I talked a little about the June 23rd res uh, primary results. Mm -hmm. Where do we stand where do we stand right now? Because I, I it's funny, I, inter I interviewed uh, the other day on the radio Jerry Goldfeder, and I should have even oh, yes. asked him where, where we stood. <laughs> where are we right now in your race? Yeah, so they're starting to count ballots. They were supposed to count uh, July 1st, and they ended up starting July 8th. Um, but they're going assembly district by assembly district, and they're starting with the lowest number. And in Queens, that was 23, 24, and 25. So as of yesterday, they were up to... Uh, the Assembly District 28, and m my Assembly District is 34, <laughs> so I have a little ways to go, um, but they're literally counting every single uh, mail-in ballot, and as, as you know, this has been a very unique year in politics, um, and as a campaign and as a public health advocate, I really, really encourage voters to ma uh, vote by mail because we wanted to see people protect themselves from going into a poll site that we didn't know what the, the you know, conditions would be in the poll site. Um, so we had over 5,000 uh, ballots that were mailed in just from my district alone. Um, so that's quite a huge number to count. So the process has to be very meticulous, very careful, and we'll have um, you know, volunteers and our team watching um, to ensure that everyone who voted has a voice in this election. And, you know, and you talked about, you just touched on that. This campaign season is like no other. Before the pandemic hit, just a few weeks before, um, I had Assemblymember Catalina Cruz in the studio mm -hmm. and the author, Caitlin, Caitlin Moscatello, who wrote See Jane Wynn. And we talked about the challenges that women, and in particular women of color, face with mm -hmm. taking elective office, office. What were some of the obstacles that you faced, and how did you also have to shift your approach to campaigning this season? Yeah. I think, you know, for, for as a woman of color, I really viscerally experienced um, the, the dynamics that women of color face in, in running for office. Oftentimes, our leadership is erased. Um, we're diminished. We're undervalued. We're erased. And those were things I experienced here in this, in this community and in this, in this race because 
you know, the, the, the community is very diverse, but there's a very loud um, minority of people that, you know, sort of see themselves as gatekeepers of the community. And, and, and unfortunately, many of those who have lived here a long time um, are, you know, that, that are working class, that are working in communities that are most marginalized, their work is not seen. Um, and my history and activism in this community goes back to decades, as you mentioned. Um, I was the founder of an immigrant justice group uh, in 1999, actually, that recently celebrated its 20th anniversary last year. Um, and that's the activism that, that brought me to want to run, right, to see the communities that have been uh, invisibilized, erased, diminished, to make sure that they have a voice. And I both experienced that as a candidate, but I've seen how the communities experience that um, with those in power. So, you know, it is it is really hard. And I'm a parent. I have a eight-year-old son in the public school system here. Um, you know, as, as a woman, I'm often juggling the multiple responsibilities of, you know, the household and the community. And I had a full-time job uh, leading a, a large organization that I'm very, very proud of. I had to quit that job <laughs> to dedicate to this campaign full-time. And, you know, that those are all really, really difficult decisions to make. Um, and and then dealing with sort of the um, erasure of our of our of my leadership and the leadership of, of so many around me. So that those that's real. Those are real challenges. And thankfully, you know, the community rose up to support me to speak up. And then you see with the with the outcome of the of the ballots <laughs> um, that there was clearly a lot of support for me. But it but it is very hard. Running for office is a challenge. Um, it's a very courageous act, I will say, um, but a deeply humbling experience. And again, you know, I'm not claiming victory yet because we have 5,000 more uh, ballots to count. But um, if I am the um, the final winner, I will be deeply humbled to make sure that every single person in our community has a voice um, when I'm up in Albany and making sure that I'm listening um, to the, the diversity and the richness of experience and um, that I'm bringing perspectives from all corners of, of the community to, to, to the work. You and I live in an area that has seen significant growth in, uh, in the progressive movement. Mm -hmm. why, do you think it took, why do you think it took hold at this time? And in particular, why so strong here in this district? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting because I, I joke I was progressive before it was cool. <laughs> um, and again, working <laughs> in communities of color, like I've always been um, – you know, sort of bold and progressive on issues because our humanity was at stake, right? The humanity of people of color, of immigrants, of women, of, of families that are devalued. Um, I was always on the front line of those that activism. But I think after Trump was elected in 2016, I think, you know, people who have never been impacted by racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, all those things aren't, are, are sort of waking up to how egregious um, the government could be around uh, hateful policies and hateful rhetoric. And I think it did really spark um, a movement in our community that uh, amongst those, I would say, that, that haven't experienced that, particularly amongst, amongst white voters, um, because I would say communities of color have always been at the front lines of this work. Um, but I think it sort of galvanized those who have been on the sidelines because their lives have not been impacted. Um, and seeing that spark and seeing that um, energy uh, really came into play around the fight for um, the, the election of uh, Jessica Ramos against uh, Jose Peralta, who was an IDC member, Independent Democratic Caucus member. Um, and I think people were done with the politics of Trump and really wanted to see uh, a, a counter leadership. And what's exciting for me is to see that leadership be women of color, Latinas particularly, who are at the forefront. Um, we live in the congressional district of uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose race, you know, stunned everybody, but I think really speaks volumes to the leadership that we're, we're yearning in this time. We're sort of done with the stodgy, uh, you know, pale male and stale leadership, very entrenched machine politics, and ready for real authentic, visionary, um, bold leadership. So we saw that with AOC, we saw that with Jessica Ramos, we saw that with Catalina Cruz, and then last year with Tiffany Caban, who was running for district attorney, who really, really changed the narrative around how we can re-envision criminal justice in, in both our community and our borough and ultimately our country. So it's been exciting, and I feel like I'm really 
um, it, it really inspired me to run because, as I mentioned, I've been doing advocacy for so long. Um, but I really realized we need bold elected officials, and it felt like the conditions were right for someone like me to raise my hand and, and, and take that reign. So we've got just about two or three minutes left, and I mentioned in introducing you about your work with the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health. I'm curious what your thoughts are about this Supreme Court ruling uh, this past week and what you think the reper repercussions are going to be allowing uh, religious and uh, moral exemptions for employers or pro opposed to contraceptives. Oh, my God. We've been deeply involved in that fight for so long, and I'm so disappointed. The, the Supreme Court issued a number of exciting rulings over the last couple of weeks, um, but this one was a hard one. Essentially, they agree that religion can be used as a form of discrimination. And in this case, it's around the uh, denial of birth control um, for folks who work in religious institutions. And I believe, and many of us believe, that religion should never be used as a tool to prevent someone from getting the health care that they need. So I'm deeply, deeply concerned about um, both the decision and then the ripple effect of that decision and how religion is going to be weaponized against um, our communities for, for trying to access the care that they need or just to be who they are. And literally, it impacts ways in which people and are accessing like critical, critical services that they need. So we have to keep an eye out on how that ruling is going to impact the everyday lives of, of all of us because it's, it's really weaponized religion as a tool of discrimination. And I've got just a minute left. So looking ahead, I realize you still need to, you know, we need to get through the absentees and then there's the November election. But mm -hmm. I'm going, saying hypothetically, what would be an issue or two that you plan to focus on in the coming months and then say when, and I'm using air quotes, when you step into office? Step into office? Yes. Um, we're still, you know, talking to voters every day. It, it is, you know, that we're still in the midst of the pandemic. There's still a lot of education that needs to be done. We are still encouraging people to fill out the census, which is absolutely critical. We need to make sure every single person in our community is counted to make sure that we're getting the resources we need, specifically as we look at the outcome of the of, of COVID-19 in this district. We've been the epicenter of the epicenter. So we have to make sure we're filling out the census. We have to make sure we're still communicating with, with, with our voters and our community and those who can't vote as well because everyone's been deeply impacted. And I'm still at food pantries and I'm still out there really making sure that our you know, community is getting the resources that they need. Um, but I think we have to also, again, underscore the need to fill out the census um, to make sure that our communities are, are counted as we go into redistricting uh, next year. And how can people learn more about you and your work? Um, my handle on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is vote, V-O-T-E-J-G-R, my initials, Jessica Zendel-Rojas, vote J-G-R. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and my website as well as votejgr.com. So I'd love for you to give me a follow um, and, and you know, share any thoughts and, and feedback. I'm, I'm a great listener. Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI, and I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, neighbor. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so you've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, candidate for New York State Assembly in the 34th District in Queens. I want to get to my final guest today, one of the first people I met when I came to New York City about two and a half decades ago as a reporter. Dennis Walcott then led the Urban League and uh, joined the New York City Board of Education, which was when we had met. He went on to become a deputy mayor for education and community development, then schools chancellor uh, 2011 to 2013, and later served as the state-appointed monitor of the East Ramapo School District. Since 2016, he has served as the president and CEO of the Queens Public Library System, one of the largest and busiest public library systems in the country and serving the most ethnically and culturally diverse areas in the country. Libraries, like many of the institutions around us, were forced to shut down their operations in the city while we went into lockdown in mid-March. And since their temporary closure, uh, library systems such as the Queens Public Library System had to quickly pivot to deliver critical services, programs, and resources to the public remotely. But as the city continues to enter a new stage of reopening, 
as the as new cases of the coronavirus drop in the region and stay low, uh, library systems are strategically restoring their services. So joining me now to talk about this and more is Dennis Walcott, President and CEO of the Queens Public Library System. Welcome back to WBAI. Good morning, Jeff. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. So you had to shut down all of your branches on March 16th, and recently only a handful had partially reopened in the first stage. Talk a little about what's going to happen this week. And I know it's not just about Queens, because other library systems in the city are doing this too. So prior to seven of our libraries opening up for what we're calling grab-and-go services on Monday, tomorrow, uh, we did a lot of work in preparing for that, and so we've ordered a ton of PPE equipment. We've installed plexiglass in those seven libraries as well as some of the other libraries that will serve as what we call fulfillment centers where people can return their books. Uh, and we're making sure that we have enough masks on hand for our staff. We want to make sure our staff and customers are extremely safe, uh, put social distancing markers in place. And so we've been working very hard to make sure we put a system in place that's both safe for our customers, safe for our staff, but most importantly, the ability to gradually open our services to serve uh, the public at large. And how did you select which branches would reopen even partially at this time? We did a very detailed analysis as far as both the size of the branch, the ability to have traffic flow in the branch and out of the branch where people are basically safe. We didn't want a branch that's too large. So, for example, the central library will not be open to the public. Flushing library will not be open to the public. Uh, it's just too large to manage and control at this particular point. Uh, we also made sure that we tried to select a library in the various parts of Queens as well. Uh, so that way we could have somewhat representative distribution of libraries throughout the borough. And so we went through a variety of analysis around uh, how we can meet those thresholds and those how those libraries were selected based on those thresholds. And talk a little more about how you've had to adjust your services and programs since Mar uh, mid-March when you were closed. So our team of people on staff is just outstanding. I just can't say enough great things about them. And we were able to pivot as a result of their excellent work uh, to a virtual world and having a variety of programs and services offered uh, online and making sure that people were aware of it. Our marketing team kept pumping information out through our website, through social media, and we've been able to have uh, programs for children, teenagers. We have our hip-hop coordinator who's on uh, Tuesday and Saturdays playing music, but also blending in what's going on in the public life as well. Uh, we've had uh, pedathons where... Our librarians, our children librarians, have brought their pets virtually to uh, the public while they're reading as well. And then we've been offering our streaming services as well. And we've had tremendous amount of digital downloads uh, for the public. So people have done a masterful job and making sure that the public is being served. And it's not just us, as you said in the introduction, in Queens, but it's the Brooklyn Public Library and the New York Public Library. All of us have been working closely together to make sure we're united as far as how we approach both the opening tomorrow as well as the way we serve the public as well. And, you know, across the country I've seen the, I'm sure you have too, some of the outrageous videos where people are uh, angrily defending their right not to wear a mask in indoors and, you know, there was a Trader Joe's incident, for instance, across the country. Uh, in our system, in the Queens Public Library system, masks will be man mandated, correct? You will not be allowed in at all if you don't have a mask. So masks will be mandatory. Our staff will be wearing masks. I'll be wearing masks. Our staff will have to fill out a form uh, every morning before they come into office, including me, and taking temperature as well and making sure that's uh, included in the form that you submit to our health and safety staff. So we're taking this very seriously, and the public, we know in Queens, will be very responsive to that. Uh, the public wants their library. I mean, I, I was telling a story to someone, where, you know, I run every morning, and I'm out early in the morning running. And two days ago when I was out around 5, 6 o'clock in the morning running, a, a woman was walking her dog. She said, I'm looking forward to Monday. And I said, Monday, what do you mean? She said, you guys will be open. And I said, oh, that's right. And people want their libraries. And unfortunately, we won't be able to give them full service 
Uh, we will not be offering program. Uh, they will not be able to use the computers. Uh, but we'll be gradually taking a look at how we improve and expand our services at the same time, making sure that we keep the services healthy and safe for the public and for our staff. You bring up this interaction with this woman, and where my mind goes is the fact that, for me, growing up, my local library was not just about checking out books. It was a place where I went to after school. There was a sense of community. And you and I have talked yeah. about the book Palaces for the People before about how uh, communities and people interact with libraries. How do you bring back that sense of community and investment in libraries at this time? It's going to be a tough adjustment, not just for the customers, but also for staff. I mean, when you really think about it, we, the library systems, are the last truly open democratic institution. We don't ask for your background, your ethnicity, your race, your sex, your sexual persuasion. We don't ask for any of that, not in your religion. And people are able to walk in the door, sit down, as you said, get comfortable, do something, do nothing. Uh, but that will not be the library that will exist starting tomorrow. And we have to be very conscious that we need to make sure we protect the public, but at the same time offering the public some form of service. So, say for the after school, for example, we will still be doing what we call our stacks program, which is an after school program virtually. And we've gotten a lot of hits in that regards, and people have been really responding to that. So we're still going to blend in the virtual world with some actual on-the-ground service. And since we opened up the process in letting people know that we'll be opening this coming Monday for grab-and-go services, we've already, this is just Queens alone, we've already had, as of Friday, 9,000 requests for books uh, to be put on hold. So we'll be gradually filling those uh, orders and people will be able to come pick them up. We'll uh, notify people by email or text that uh, their book is ready. Uh, and so uh, we are very conscious of the challenge of what we're living in right now, but also the importance of the role of libraries in serving the public. So, and you mentioned that 9,000. By the way, if you're hearing dogs, one of the <laughs> one of the issues that I have is uh, being right near an open street here in Jackson Heights. You're going to hear a lot of dogs barking outside. Um, I do a mix of reading. I, I mean, look, I'm patting myself on the back. What helps me at the end of each day is I read. I'm up to 37 books this year and largely through downloads from the Queens Library System and the New York Public Library System. I'm curious during this pandemic what you have witnessed as far as the public's, uh, you know, request for digital downloads. Has that surged? It's been amazing. It's an explosion. Uh, we've had a total number of 677,273 uh, downloads. And it's been music streaming, e-books, e-magazines, audiobooks music download, streaming video, and people have been taking advantage of that. And I think what's happened is that people have seen, and we've seen internally, a different way of serving the public. And I think that will continue, but there's still nothing like having your doors open for the public to take advantage of the services that we offer. And again, those services will be limited in the beginning, uh, but at the same time, we want to make sure that people understand that. And I think one of the key things is that for those individuals who may have taken uh, books and materials out uh, before the shutdown, uh, they will have the ability to return them uh, to a number. Of, in Queens, we're a little bit different that we have 24-7 machines at a number of our libraries. So for those uh, fulfillment centers and for those libraries that are open for grab-and-go, the people will have the ability to return their books and materials. And they can take their time because it will be fine-free at least until October 1st. All cards will be unlocked, and so people can take advantage of using their library cards as well. So we're making sure that in not just uh, Queens, but in Brooklyn, Staten Island, in the Bronx, in Manhattan, um, people will be able to take advantage of their coordinated library services, both returning the material and having signs being waived. So I want to uh, have you step back into one of your previous roles as school's chancellor and consider that if you had been chancellor now, what would you be envisioning uh, as far as reopening schools this fall? Because I'm reading different stories each day. Parents seem very confused and worried about what's going to take place. What would you be considering? I want to even take a step back further because in your introduction you talked about when we first met. 
And yeah. I'm not sure if you were covering education at this point, but if you remember, back then we had a crisis, nothing to this magnitude, where we had asbestos in schools. And I was on the board of ed at that particular point. And we had to really address that last minute because there was a num- there were a number of issues that came up as a result of the asbestos and having to remove the asbestos. And part of the challenge is making sure that one is communicating on a regular basis. So I think the chancellor and the mayor have been doing that. Uh, the governor has been doing that. And I think the other thing is that you have to make sure that you are grounded in that. This is the most difficult thing that I think any chancellor, mayor, governor have faced as far as schools are concerned. And there will be people who are going to be upset no matter what you do and how you try to do it. And I think that's part of the ability of trying to manage through the complexities of this particular world. I think that for me, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't preach as far as what the chancellor should be doing. There's only one chancellor at a time. And I think Richard has done a very good job in getting out there. And I think the mayor and the governor have also done a good job. But I think it requires as we get closer uh, for the communication to increase more and more, people to understand where you're coming from. Because, unfortunately, this is baked into politics right now, and we have to step away from the politics to make sure that the parents, the teachers, and all the staff are very clear that decisions that are being reached are being reached based with a health lens and making sure we keep the staff and our families and our children as safe as possible. And I don't think people can imagine all the moving parts and the complexities of what it means because, you know, you you talk about the transportation system, you talk about the building infrastructure, you talk about teachers who uh, may be over a certain age and are very concerned about returning to school. Um, You talk about parents who need to work and may not have childcare in place. I mean, all these are really important issues in the health of the community. And then when you multiply that by 1.1 million students and you multiply that by uh, roughly 1,245 buildings, which equals roughly 1,800-plus schools, that's the New York City system. And I think it has to be clear to people that decisions will be reached sometimes that some people may not be happy about. But I know that the chancellor, the mayor, and the governor have been working very hard to keep the best interests of our families in mind and making sure they communicate as much as possible. And finally, as I get ready to wrap up, I want to go back to the Queens uh, Public Library System. Uh, if people are not sure if their local branch is one of those that is going to be reopening, where should they go to find out about the locations, about the hours, and any other updates? Sure. So they can go to our website, uh, Queens Public Library, uh, and they'll get all that information. Matter of fact, we have, and I'm not a social media person. So I'm going to speak way above uh, my own pay grade as far as understanding is concerned. But they should go to the Queens Public Library website, and they will see the information of the seven libraries that will be opening. And I'm going to get myself in trouble because I don't have it in front of me, but I'm going to try. So Bayside, Long Island City, Belrose, Laurelton, Peninsula, uh, Kew Gardens Hills, and I'm missing one. Uh, uh, those are the ones that are going to open. And then we have a number of libraries that will serve as the fulfillment centers. And they will be available for book returns on a 24-7 basis. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're excited about what the potential holds, but we also understand the importance of health for the Queens community and the parents and the children and the city overall, and that's why we're going to start very gradual as far as the services we render and make sure that we expand in a very planned way, always keeping the health and safety of our children. And before you close, I'm going to check and double-check those (laughs) libraries because I know I'm forgetting one or two of them, but... um, you know, be that as I, I think the main. Go ahead, Jeff. They're all on the website. They're all on the website, and, you know, we're very proud of, I think, the hard work that our folks have done in getting us to this particular point because, all right, so Bayside, Bell Road, ah, East Elmhurst, 
Kew Gardens Hills, Laurelton, Long Island City, and Peninsula. And for returns only, Astoria, Cambria Heights, Central, Flushing, Jackson Heights, Queensboro Hill, Rigo Park, Ridgewood, and South Ozone Park. But it's on the website, and the hours will be from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And in between, from 1 to 2, we'll be closing for deep cleaning. And then on Tuesday, we'll be open from 1 to 5 p.m. And on Thursday, we'll be open from 12 to 7 p.m. with, again, a one-hour closure from 3 to 4 for deep cleaning. Dennis Walcott, thank you so much for joining me on uh, WBAI today. Jeff, always, seriously, always a pleasure to talk to you. My best to your family. Okay, same to you, ma'am. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So you've been listening to City Watch here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I'd like to thank Dennis Walcott from the Queens Public Library System for appearing on the show today. And also my other guest, Hope Knight of the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation and activist and progressive Democratic candidate for Assembly, Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas. As I mentioned at the beginning of this show, this was a very Queens-focused show, but at the same time, the issues we discussed are much broader than any one community. They're much more universal. I want to thank you again for tuning in. And for our listeners, I'd like to thank you again if you have made the effort to be able to contribute to support WBAI during our extended spring into summer fund drive. So once again, just want to give you that number before I close, the number to call. If you can donate $10, $15, $20, any amount will help us. 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602, or go online to give to, that is the number two, wbai.org, give to wbai.org. Again, I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Next Sunday, my co-host David Brand will be with you, so have a great weekend.